If you're interested in what China's doing in Africa and the Global South, you're going to want to subscribe to the China Africa Project. We've indexed every major news story going back years, and it's easily searchable by country, topic, or keyword. Plus, we're the only source for daily analysis on all of the big stories related to Chinese engagement in Africa and throughout the developing world. With a subscription, you'll enjoy full access to the site. Plus, you'll get our popular daily email newsletter that comes out every morning at 6 a.m. Washington time. Subscriptions start at just $7 a month for students and teachers and $15 a month for everyone else. To sign up, just go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, for the past few months, we have been talking a lot about the changes in Chinese development finance and this started with a conversation that we had with Kevin Gallagher last fall about the real plunge in development finance that's gone on for the past four years. Going back to 2016, it was, what, $75 billion. Then last year, it went all the way down to $4 billion. And there's been a big change. But one of the things that we keep hearing from people who follow Chinese development finance is although that it's changed, it hasn't entirely gone away. And this year in 2021, what we have seen is a really interesting evolution of what they're doing in places like Africa. So I wrote an article earlier this week on the website and really detailing the kind of new parameters of Chinese development finance. It's now projects are smaller. They're focused on profitability. There's a new array of funders who are involved. And also the projects seem to be much more aligned with Chinese corporate interests for companies like Transin and Huawei and StarTimes and things like that. Let me give you an example of just what we've seen over the past two or three months for the most part, not even two or three months. This is actually just six weeks. There was a $94 million project in Burkina Faso to build a smart Burkina, which is a smart city program. They're going to wire up the whole country. They're going to put a surveillance system in. They're going to put traffic cameras, the whole thing that they come with the smart city. That was funded by the China Exim Bank. $31 million the Three Gorges Corporation will use to upgrade a pair of power substations outside of the Ghanaian capital of Accra. There is a $200 million power substation that will be built by Shanghai Electric in Kinshasa. That was just announced a couple of weeks ago as well. Interesting side note about that one. That project was first discussed back in January when Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi made his visit to the Congolese capital, Kinshasa. Now here we are just eight months later and they're breaking ground on that project. So speed is another key criteria here. And finally, up in Senegal, there was an announcement of an $18.2 million new data center built by Huawei, and I think managed by Huawei for uh, the Senegalese government, and where that's their national data center again. So you're seeing that these projects now are in the tens of millions, 
and hundreds of millions rather than the billions and whatnot. Now, what's happening on the ground and these big changes that are coming, and there's a lot of them, not just in terms of the scope and scale of the projects, but also the nature of the projects. They're getting greener. They're getting smaller. They're leaning more into sustainable energy. This messaging that is not getting through to policymakers in places like Washington and Brussels and London. And in many ways, they are still caught on narratives that are, I don't know, two, three, four, ten 10 years old. Let me give you an example, Kobus. And I thought of you during this exchange that I, I saw on Yahoo Finance. It's by Jake Levine, who's being interviewed on Yahoo Finance. Jake Levine, for those of you who are not familiar, is the chief climate officer at the U.S. Development Finance Corporation. That's a new position, by the way, at DFC. And he was asked about the role of China in development. Let's take a listen to the exchange with the host from Yahoo Finance. So, Jay, going back to the question of how you pick your priorities when you've got this grand goal, really, I mean, there's a long list of projects that need to be pursued. How big of a factor um, does the competition with China play into that at a time when they are investing billions of dollars in emerging economies? Well, it's important. I mean, look, the DFC is very affirmatively seeking to provide an alternative to the type of financing that China provides through its Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, You know, China has engaged in um, a certain uh, development finance practices um, that are more in line with the type of practices that you see coming from authoritarian governments. Um, You see uh, other recipient governments uh, oftentimes pressured to take on this type of sort of debt trap um, financing. And the U.S. government working with its partners to the G7 is providing a values-based alternative focused on sustainability, not just on climate sustainability, but on financial sustainability, uh, and focused on making investments that are ultimately good for the countries where we are providing investments. So that includes bringing up basic environmental and social and labor standards uh, in line with U.S. Uh, and American values and, and the types of values that we don't see coming from uh, other, other types of investors uh, like, um, like China and others. Kobus, I'm going to start a fund <laughs> where I'm going to have a cookie jar on the table. And every time we hear an American official say the words debt trap, you either have to take a drink or you have to put a dollar in the jar. <laughs> so there we go. But anyway, that's the stock talking points coming out of Washington, D.C. Uh, so Chinese investments are multi-billion dollars. They're polluting. They're not sustainable. They don't represent good values. And they facilitate and, and provoke debt traps. Kobus, I know you have a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very interesting to hear this because you know the the situation on the ground is just shifting so quickly that as you say this this talking point is already five years old, um, and you know especially especially seeing over the last month or two um, the minister, Chinese Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of the Environment um, has put out new guidelines for for Chinese companies working internationally. So and, and now you know kind of as as you said like they're, they're moving 
moving smaller. They're more moving. They're looking at sustainable finance. They also now have a lot, a lot of new rules for environmental sustainability. So you know, kind of, I, I th- so 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 you know, these kind of moves from China is really kind of undercutting these these Western talking points. Well, let's get into some of the facts that I think are in short supply in places like the DFC, where they are clearly not up to date on the China Belt and Road Initiative Investment Report for the first half of 2021. That was written by the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center at the Central University of Finance and Economics. Let me give you a couple little data points here. No coal projects received any financing or investments in the first half of 2021. The average deal size is getting smaller. That's what I mentioned at the top of the program, dropping from an average of $1.3 billion in 2018 to $550 million in 2021. Again, that's worldwide, not just in Africa. The Green BRI Center also forecasts that the focus for the rest of 2021 is going to continue to be on smaller projects that are quicker to implement, including solar and wind. And also, they're going to try and cut their losses in large, often loss-making projects like coal power plants. We saw that earlier this year when the Industrial Commercial Bank of China backed out of the Senghua power plant in Zimbabwe. So we'll see probably more of that. Also, for the second half of 2021, they're forecasting an acceleration of green projects and finance. And again, due to these guidelines that Cobus brought up, and I'm going to dive into that very quickly before we get to our guest. As Cobus mentioned, these were issued by the Ministry of Commerce and the Ministry of Environment uh, back on July 16th. These are very important. Now, they're not law and they're not regulations. They are guidelines. The official document is known as the Green Development Guidelines for Overseas Investment and cooperation, a typically staid type of Chinese policy document, but there's some really important things here. Let me read four points of this because this will set up our conversation today. Adhere to the green development concept throughout the entire process of foreign direct investment and cooperation. That's point number one. Point number two, encourage the practice of environmental impact assessments and due diligence in accordance with internationally accepted standards. This is very interesting because this is not the kind of rhetoric that we have heard coming from the Chinese government in the past. Number three, apply high standards at the planning and design phase of infrastructure projects and strengthen contact with host country governments, media, local people, and environmental protection organizations. Again, that is something that we have not seen before. Last point that I want to bring up on this Support investment in solar, wind, nuclear, and biomass energy, and other forms of clean energy. So again, these are not binding regulations that are coming from MOFCOM and from the Ministry of Environment. They are guidelines, but it's the kind of finger in the wind that the state-owned enterprises and other Chinese companies and actors use in order to justify, explain, rationalize, and prioritize some of their investments. So Let's get some perspective on this because there is so much going on. We want to try and close some of the knowledge gaps that clearly exist in places like Washington. I'm hoping that Jake Levine himself might be listening to the program. Uh, So to do that, we've asked our good friend Christopher Nedipal Wong to join us back on the program. You may remember Christoph from uh, his time when he was at the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center at the Central University of Finance and Economics, when back up in Beijing. He wrote that China Belt and Road Initiative report. He has since now moved to Fudan University, where he is the director of the Green Finance and Development Program there in Shanghai. A very good evening to you, Christoph. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. 
Thanks so much for having me back. I'm uh, very happy to uh, to be here. Okay, so I kind of laid out here some of the really big changes that have been happening in Chinese development finance. I kind of went through some of the key points in your report. Why don't you pick up on some of the changes that you've seen in 2021 in terms of the shift towards clean financing and moving away from coal projects as ICBC appears to have done in places like Zimbabwe? So I think kind of your opening was uh, very spot on that there's a lot of movement um, going on in the Belt and Road Initiative. There is, of course, also driven by COVID um, a time to rethink what is relevant for China, what is possible for China, what is strategically important um, for China, as if, if it's policy banks, but of course also to accelerate um, some of the commercial projects. Um, that uh, we, we, can, we can talk about those in detail, because this is of course also not only commercial, because you have um, government insurance that is often required for, uh, for some of these projects. Um, and I also very much enjoyed the Yahoo finance clip that you uh, that you shared um, I think uh, we are of course also in, in touch with some of the uh, American colleagues here and I think there's a broad recognition if you t- if you talk with the colleagues in Beijing um, of course that uh, n- things that were true maybe a couple of years ago um, have to be looked at in a new light particularly if it's um, about China's overseas financing. Now, kind of what we're seeing in terms of um, greening the Belt and Road Initiative, there has, of course, been this large announcement at the 2019 Belt and Road Forum um, that uh, green is the color of the Belt and Road Initiative and that we need more green finance, green projects um, to uh, uh, build a uh, future for shared mankind and and, and what so on. Um, And last year was actually an interesting um, year as well in 2020, where we for the first time saw that the renewable energy investments that, that includes hydropower were more than the fossil fuel um, investments in the energy sector. Now, that was a first, and I think that uh, showed a um, trend that fossil fuel investments are becoming riskier also, of course, because of uh, stranded assets in times of climate change. And this year, um, I think very promising, we saw uh, that uh, we, did not, we did not see actually any uh, coal investments, and that is coal mining um, and coal-fired power plants. We also looked at um, some more data, um, particularly from 2014 to 2020, to see how Chinese overseas coal um, investments have evolved. And what we saw there is, is also actually very striking that um, most or the majority of coal-fired power plants that were announced since 2014 are actually not really moving forward. Um, so of the coal-fired power plants that have been announced since 2014, only one um, went into operation. Um, all the others um, are... Uh, some of them are in construction, but actually a lot of them um, were cancelled. So of the 23 coal-fired power plants were shelved since uh, 2015, um, and the further 14 um, were cancelled. So that really um, puts a showstopper on on some of the uh, um, big arguments that China is the largest investor in coal. That has been true for a long time, but there is lots um, of hesitation to invest in uh, new coal-fired power plants. One of the really notable um, elements that, that came out in these recommendations from the ministries was that 
um, that they recommend that in countries where there's weak uh, environmental regulation or, or weak enforcement, that the the Chinese companies move beyond kind of national environ national environmental uh, regu regulation to work according to international standards. So, um, you know, that, that, that's, really, that's a really big shift because traditionally, you know, kind of that, the, the weakness or strength of, of local implementation was, was one of the kind of main ways in which, in which one could gauge how, how ecologically sustainable a Chinese project would be. Um, and this seems like a, like a significant kind of shift beyond that. Can you talk a little bit about that and also which particular international standards are they talking about? So I think and you're absolutely right. For years, and of course in the regulation still, China adheres to what is sometimes called the host country principle, where the particularly environmental aspects, if the host country deems this project to be in line with the environmental laws and therefore hands out an environmental impact assessment license so that your uh, environmental footprint is acceptable in the in the host country, then that is often enough for the Chinese project owners or, the, the, for example, the state-owned enterprises and, of course, also the uh, financiers like the ICBC or the China Development Bank. So they only looked at Uh, for a long time, do you have this environmental impact assessment according to the local laws in these countries? Now, we know that some of these countries, of course, don't have very high standards or don't have the way to implement them or to enforce them. Um, so that's why a lot of the international finance institutions, development finance institutions like the World Bank, um, and also the private financial institutions through the equator principles have said, let's apply higher standards in these countries where um, the local standards are not good. And this, this is, of course, two reasons. One is the responsibility that you have towards that host country that you're not going to um, destroy the environment unnecessarily. But also you reduce, as a financial institution, your own risk um, because of at some point these uh, violations of environmental standards might haunt um, the financial institutions and might actually um, seriously damage the project or the reputation of the, the project sponsors. And so this shift has really taken place that uh, last year, the uh, Green Development Guidance, which was issued by the Belt and Road Initiative Green Coalition, which is backed by the MEE, Ministry of Ecology and Environment in China, um, that called for this application of international standards, particularly in, uh, in uh, countries um, that are uh, not as strong and for projects that are deemed environmentally harmful. Um, so there's kind of this traffic light system with the uh, red projects um, that are uh, more restricted because of their environmental harm. So this is really kind of a shift in the screen development guidance that we see this coming out from two of the leading ministries that are responsible for regulating um, overseas uh, projects not investments and projects, because Mofcom is not fully responsible for, for the financial sector, of course. Uh, the, the second aspect, which is really important in the, um, in the guidelines, is that it really covers all three aspects of the, uh, um, of the environmental spectrum, uh, what we say. So you have pollution control, that is, um, how much can you pollute into the air, uh, how much can you pollute into the river or into the soils. The second is greenhouse gas emissions, so climate, uh, um, climate gases, CO2. 
And the third one is biodiversity. Now, with all the talk about climate change, we have to make sure that we don't forget some of the other really, really important environmental aspects. Um, pollution control, really air pollution, um, is, is definitely one, uh, on the minds of, of many people here um, in, in, I think, broader Asia, but definitely also in China, and biodiversity protection. So by including very specifically all three environmental aspects, it is also really a milestone in terms of guiding overseas, um, uh, overseas investments. I think it's great that the Chinese are finally starting to employ some of this rhetoric and that the policies are starting to reflect the demands that a lot of us have been making on the Chinese to actually catch up with the times and to be greener. But at the same time, I'm having a very difficult time reconciling what you're saying and what these policies or these, they're not policies, these recommendations and guidelines coming out of the two ministries are with the realities on the ground. And the realities on the ground in many parts of Africa, as you know very well, is that Chinese companies are not always very good actors here. Illegal logging in Gabon and also in the Congo, the Republic of Congo, is widespread. We see illegal mining and mining activities are in, in Ghana being a, a chronic problem in the eastern DRC, in South Kivu province just this past week, uh, the governor there suspended the licenses of six mining companies for environmental degradation. The list goes on and on and on and on. The response from the embassies tends to be, well, we tell these companies just to respect the local laws, and that's basically it. So, yes, on the one hand, I think it's fantastic that they have this new rhetoric. But on the other hand, if there's no consequence for Chinese companies when they violate laws or when they just violate the, the standards set by the two ministries, what's the point? I mean, tell me, help me figure out how to get my head around all the news that I see about bad behavior from Chinese companies, environmentally speaking, and what you're writing about and what the ministries are writing about in terms of these new guidelines. That's an um, important question, kind of how can these guidelines actually be effective? That means actually reducing um, negative environmental impacts. There is, I, th I think we're in, in many ways at the, somewhere in the middle of this very long journey um, in, in protecting uh, the environment. And uh, we also have to make sure that this, these guidelines are very much looking at um, not Chinese-owned local companies, which sometimes um, kind of are, are harder to manage, but often overseas or companies that are in China that are investing um, overseas, um, ideally with with Chinese um, financing as well. So there's kind of a specific spectrum, which are, tends to be then the larger projects and not the uh, some of the smaller projects that we're seeing. So um, I think. Uh, there is, of course, also larger projects that, that run into serious environmental um, issues. There was a report on, uh, I believe, Reuters recently about um, uh, some blasting through mountains um, uh, in, uh, for some, some uh, uh, rail, rail line um, to connect a mine with a, with a, with a port um, <coughs> that had not received an EIA license. Um, and uh, so these, these things uh, are not... Uh, going away from one day to the next. I think um, this requires continuous monitoring um, by local agencies, by local NGOs, um, uh, to uh, actually 
and put the put the finger in, into the wound where it, where actually something bad is bad is happening. Um, but also, of course, on our side, while we're sitting in China, to uh, know about these stories and and uh, um, also adjust the regulation, adjust the guidances, or kind of make the right suggestions um, how to do that. Um, so it's it's a it's a long journey, and I, th I think we are we're just somewhere at the beginning. I think what's also important to note is that most countries. Actually, I don't know of any country that would have such a um, guideline to um, provide policy guidance for overseas financing in such a such a strict way, which is targeted not only at uh, state-owned development banks, but much more broader at the uh, business community um, that is going from China into the world. On that point, um, this is a super basic question, but you know we, we've we've spoken about these recommendations and the the, the kind of rules and, and you know and and best practices for Chinese companies when they do work in the global south. What are what about their Western counterparts? You know what what are some of the the you know what are the kind of the regulations according to which big Western companies work and what are how are they kept you know kind of how kept to how are they kept compliant? Um, you know, for example, I remember recently there was a there was a, a big case I think settled against. A big case decided against Shell, I think, in a Dutch court, um, you know, about about environmental uh, degradation in in Nigeria, um, and you know, so so beyond the kind of local communities taking foreign companies to Western courts, like what 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 other rules are there that actually kind of keep them environmentally compliant, and are they actually doing better than their Chinese counterparts? So the overall kind of logic of doing business is of course different um, between the Chinese economy um, and more Western economies. The stakeholders that you have in the uh, uh, Western business uh, community are of course government is one who sets the regulation but then you have a very strong media and NGO presence and uh, then you have the investors that have their own um, ideas how the company um, should be running um, with the possibility um, as you just said also to voice your concerns in shareholder meetings and so this whole environment of putting pressure and um, making change ideally um, for more sustainable development is much more multi multifaceted um, in China, it's of course different. The government plays a much larger role. Um, the government is often the owner of the companies. It's often the customer of the companies. It's of course the regulator. Then often uh, in state-owned enterprises, you have of course also government officials um, leading the, the, the company. So the ecosystem is much more um, dependent on policy guidance. Um, and therefore, the necessity to provide such policy guidance, such as the um, uh, guidelines for greening overseas investments and cooperation, which you, which you mentioned at the beginning, um, is much more prevalent in, in such a, a state-led uh, capitalism than in a, a more market-led capitalism. So the enforcement mechanisms in a market-led capitalism are much broader, whereas in the Chinese system, it's much more dependent on um, what, the, uh, what the regulation and the government uh, wants to do. Is it just a coincidence that these new guidelines and this new focus on sustainability and green energy is coming out at the same time as the pressure on China is going up by the G7 countries uh, to be more sustainable and the fact that they're positioning themselves as the greener, cleaner alternative to China? So it just seems that maybe China is now coming out with its own counter narrative to, to what the G7 is putting out. Or are these two completely 
unrelated, and China's doing its thing, and the G7's doing its thing separately. So there is, there, shortly after the G7 um, announced is its um, B3W, um, the, a number of 29 BRI countries um, formed this Alliance for uh, Green BRI Partnership. Um, so that, I think, was can be seen as more a direct reaction. And in some ways, also, I believe, very different because uh, in this in this partnership you have actually 29 um, high-level government officials signing up to this uh, um, partnership, whereas the G7 is, um, of course, the, the club of the seven wealthiest um, nations that has, has come up with it. Um, so the, the guidelines itself, um, I don't believe, are a reaction to the B3W. Um, because it takes some time to uh, um, introduce this, um, to discuss this. It's not that any ministry would come out with a regulation and just throw it out into the public. Um, there's a cons- consultation process um, where several of the key stakeholders um, are invited to, to give comments, um, to have workshops. Um, and so this takes much longer than, uh, than a couple of months um, to come up with it. So I highly doubt that this is just a reaction to um, B3W. The guidelines. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at the Wits University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za. Eric mentioned in, in the intro that the, the incident where um, where Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, um, ICBC, uh, walked away from from a large um, investment in a coal-powered uh, f- uh, electricity plant and related colliery um, in in Zimbabwe, um, and ICBC was also also stepped away from from a similar plant planned in for in Lamu in Kenya um, after after a lawsuit by local NGOs and, and the local community um, you know in in a, in an in an environment where we're seeing a diversification of, of Chinese lenders in Africa and where there's more commercial lenders and commercial banks um, involved, what did you make of ICBC's decision to step away? Like, how much did it have to do with influence from the Chinese government or, you know, kind of like seeing that some of these, how the wind is turning in relation to, to regulation and to which extent had it to do with their kind of international business and international image? I think it's hard to pin down kind of uh, pin it down to one specific reason there might be also um, other reasons that are um, even just a country risk of Zimbabwe um, can Zimbabwe uh, pay back at any point in time this massive loan um, that would have been necessary to build this um, uh, this power plant um, so what are the country risks can you ensure that as a as a sino who, who would have to ensure that so there might be um, very very commercial reasons and there is of course also um, the uh, second aspect of commercial reasons that in the end renewable energy um, has become in many places so much uh, more affordable and therefore cheaper than, than coal um, so it is not competitive uh, per se anymore in, in most countries uh, any, any coal investments um, then there's um, the political wind that we know that coal is not 
high on the agenda to push it out um, from China and to the world anymore. Um, that there is this um, knowledge that the international community is extremely interested in uh, China to phase out overseas coal investments. Um, the EU has again uh, demanded it. The G20 has tried to uh, to put that um, into their final uh, communique. Um, so everybody knows that this overseas coal financing is extremely um, important and it's also potentially an interesting uh, bargaining um, chip for, for China. In my opinion, kind of this whole topic of overseas coal investments from China is a little bit like beating a, beating a dead fish. Uh, the question is, um, how can we, the, the more important question is all, almost how can we phase out existing um, operating coal plants earlier? So how can we retire them earlier? Um, what type, types of policy means and financial means and instruments do we have to accelerate the retirement of, ex, of the existing coal fleet, um, particularly in uh, um, also the, the Chinese-owned ones or the Chinese-operated ones. Um, so it's not so much about new coal-fired uh, power plants anymore. I think there's a very strong tendency uh, and trend that uh, we're not seeing so many of them and potentially also none of them anymore. It would be great to have this announcement um, just to, to clarify it, but the... Uh, uh, the real economics of coal um, are just not there anymore. So I think there is a number of different reasons um, for the ICBC pullout of the uh, Zimbabwe coal fire power plant. I think the timing is also um, very convenient, but it's also extremely difficult right now in this uh, COVID times to send over uh, tons of engineers and tons of um, uh, experts to actually plan and implement uh, the construction of such a plant. Let's go back to the report that you wrote back where you were at the Green BRI Center. This is the first half report for the BRI. Let me read a couple statistics here, and then I'd like you to look into the second half of the year going forward and tell us some of the trends that you're seeing. So investments uh, went down to non-BRI countries in the first six months of the year, but went up 36.9% to BRI countries. So that's very interesting. It shows that there is a benefit to countries joining the BRI, and those that are on the outside are not getting as much investment, in fact, any investment in that case. Uh, Asia seems to be benefiting more. 49% of BRI investment in the first six months of the year went here in Asia, probably most in Southeast Asia. It doesn't specify that, but that's my assumption. Uh, Africa and Middle Eastern countries received about 38% of BRI investments in the first half of the year. Um, Also, in terms of the different sectors, not surprising, energy and transportation are the big ones. Uh, It decreased slightly compared to uh, last year at this time. So 72% of all BRI investments in the first half of 2020. This year, it's down to 65%. So I'd like to get your take on that. Uh, Finally, uh, in terms of energy investments, this is most interesting. And this goes back to what we talked about at the top of the show when I mentioned Kevin Gallagher and the team at Boston University's Global Development Policy Center and the data that they've been tracking, which is the sharp decline in overseas development finance for energy projects. Uh, Christophe, you noted in your report that uh, for the first half of the year in 2021, energy investments were $6.1 billion. This compares to more than $9.7 billion in the first half of 2020 and $21 billion in the first half of 2017 and 2018. So, wow, uh, still that, that downward trajectory there. With all those data points that I listed, help us better understand what we should expect now going forward into the second half of the year and into 2022 
with a particular focus on the energy sector? I think uh, the uh, look into the glass ball is always uh, extremely uh, exciting and dangerous, and uh, um, because you you can only go only go uh, uh, only go wrong. Um, <clears throat> so I think the uh, uh, we'll see hopefully an uptick of um, some of the investments, um, particularly in those countries um, that are closer um, to to China from from a geography and um, perspective. So you just mentioned um, Southeast Asia. I think um, we will see uh, a high possibility that there's uh, high probability that there's continuous strong investments there. Um, from the deal size, I also don't kind of. I, what you mentioned very much at the top of the show, the deal size is getting smaller. These projects are just really quick to implement. Um, most of the um, the SOEs and the big construction companies are extremely hungry to do projects, but they're also, um, of course, struggling to make any deals. So rather making some small deals than, than making no deals um, is, is, is definitely um, also the trend I, I see for the next uh, couple of months. Um, in terms of energy investments, it's extremely um, interesting. It's, it's also going to be interesting um, to keep a clear track of the of the data um i'm saying that because the big ticket items are extremely easy um, to follow the uh, sometimes much smaller ticket items like uh, a small wind park or a small um, solar park are often harder to follow for two reasons first of all they're smaller and second um, the financing model is um, often very different whereas in the uh, um, hydropower, the coal, where you had uh, half a billion to a couple billion dollars of investments. Um, you have usually Chinese financing involved, um, and it's uh, this typical build, own, operate, transfer um, model. Um, we see a different operating model, of course, for renewables, where many more private uh, players, also from the Chinese side, um, are selling their equipment, or maybe even installing their equipment, but not necessarily operating them, but maybe operating them. So there's a a broader mix of um, possibilities for China to actually, or for Chinese companies to engage overseas, really just as a supplier, maybe as an operator, maybe as an investor. Um, so there is, I think, a uh, um, data tracking um, challenge that, that uh, we're, we're also trying to solve um, in order to get a clean picture of what is actually happening, happening um, in the energy space. Um, you know, so so we we talked a lot about the supply side um, of it, and and of course there's this international discussion about whether China is going to keep, uh, you know, become more sustainable in, in the the kind of projects that it's financing and stop financing unsustainable projects. But I was wondering what your impression is on the demand side. Um, over the last few months, we've covered several African countries who seem hell bent on on trying to squeeze the last little bit of money they can out of the coal reserves that they have. That that's not even mentioning all of the gas and, and oil pipelines that are being planned across Africa. But, you know, so, so for example, I think Botswana recently said that they, they're going to try and kind of lean into, into some of these, um, this kind of extraction in order to, for, I think their, their minister said, you know, for if, 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 it only, if we can only make money out of it for the next 20 years, then fine. Um, so I was wondering what, what your impression is of these kind of global south governments that are really convinced that they do want kind of coal mining and coal uh, power infrastructure and whether if china stops funding it who else do you think will step up 
I think the back door to open uh, kind of the uh, uh, natural resources like coal, gas, oil um, is particularly appealing um, in a situation where your eco the economies of a lot of these countries are um, struggling, where the state coffers are empty and where um, such a uh, mine or oil field um, really allures with um, supposedly stable um, revenues over over the next years. So I think the uh, um, the, the motivation to uh, develop those is um, quite obvious. Now, the question is, uh, what we're also often looking at, um, is how much employment does it actually generate and how much long-term economic benefit are you actually generating? And there, the... Uh, um, The results are uh, actually quite quite clear, um, that with the development of renewable energies, um, particularly, um, and of course investment in uh, actual uh, uh, social development and human development, the long term economic benefits for a country are are much better. So if if suddenly kind of nobody needs oil anymore, or a port is closed, or a pipeline um, cannot operate anymore, um, then the revenues are also extremely hit and, and because the dependence on this um, one source of, of revenues is, is very big. So I'm, I'm often skeptical about kind of this very alluring but too simple logic um, to fill the government coffers. Now, that does not mean that China is not uh, um, willing to, to uh, or Chinese financial institutions or also SOEs that have um, money or also private companies um, are willing to uh, finance this if the revenue streams are extremely clear. Um, so China has often for the last years uh, relied on these um, uh, sovereign-backed guarantees. And I think that's also one of the reasons why this, and I uh, hope I don't have to put anything into the cookie chart for mentioning it, um, but where the debt trap diplomacy... Oh, there, there um, it is, right there, Kobus. So let's put a dollar <laughs> in the cookie chart. I'm, I'm, like I'm mentioning where, where the debt trap diplomacy... Um, idea uh, might have come from, that uh, a lot of the projects are financed um, or have been financed with um, uh, sovereign guarantees. And so if these, if these sovereign guarantees guarantee um, a, a stable return, if you invest in this, uh, in this mine or in this, in this oil field, it is almost like a no-brainer um, for an investor to do so. It's, 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 it's printing money. Um, the interesting thing is that... Uh, There's a lot of talk about moving away from this requirement for, for sovereign guarantees. And uh, <clears throat> there are a number of, of reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons it's extremely hard to find um, co-investors, international co-investors, either directly at the outset of the pro, um, project or also later on when anybody wants to expand the project or sell the project. Um, so international investors are not necessarily so interested in this sovereign back guarantees, particularly in countries um, whose sovereign might not be so solvent over the long term or there's some worries about the solvency of, this, of the sovereign. Um, so it is more seen as a risk uh, by uh, international um, investors. So there's kind of, then also in China, this, this idea to move away from, from the sovereign, which, which then makes... Also, such projects like uh, uh, oil uh, development and gas development, um, a little bit more tricky, not impossible, but definitely um, uh, requires different funding models and than we, we saw in the last years. So we started our conversation focusing on people like Jake Levine, who are 
obviously misinformed and don't really understand the situation. They're about four or five years behind in terms of their understanding of these issues. Uh, he represents in many ways a lot of the current thinking in Washington, Brussels, London, and many Western capitals. Uh, and I think even here in Asia, too, a lot of people don't have an understanding of what the Chinese are doing in the energy financing space. So if let's close our discussion with you kind of giving us what should people like Jake, if you had the chance to sit down with him or other policymakers to tell them about where we are in this moment in terms of what the Chinese are doing and what we should expect from them? I think there should be a, a clear recognition, number one, that things are moving forward in the green space. And um, this is an area of cooperation. I think also China sees this as an area for cooperation. And this is where um, uh Cooperation is, is in, in the interest of um, all involved parties who are doing um, overseas development finance or just overseas finance, because not all of Chinese finance is, of course, development finance. Um, so first of all, a recognition. Second of all, um, where are cooperation possibilities also in terms of co-financing? Um, and I think what I mentioned before, early retirements of um, uh, coal-fired power plants um, is, is, is one of the co-financing possibilities. The other one is, of course, um, on actually um, building different types of renewable energy, which is not just the production of energy and electricity, but also the distribution. Um, so who's, who's owning distribution networks? How can we cooperate that? Is there a possibility for uh, multilateral donors um, to, to step up the game? Which, of course, the multilateral donors or the multilateral investors are funded um, by different countries, including the US and China. Um, and then, of course, the whole aspect of what do, and COVID and, and you are both um, rightfully pointing kind of at this at this gap and often the discussion um, how can we work actually with the countries and not just tell them what they should need or kind of let's figure out China and US how they can cooperate in order to do what and uh, kind of how can we um, support the uh, uh, local economies. How, how can we integrate them? How can we provide capacity? Um, you also had uh, great discussions on the debt negotiations or any type of uh, loan neg negotiations. How can we ensure that there's actually the capacity on the ground um, to uh, to work with them and uh, avoid any um, future debt problems that, of course, um, we're, we're seeing right now or can at least minimize them. So I think there's a number of different um, uh, cooperation possibilities. And there's a, a number of different points that I would really uh, see that the U.S. Um, and also uh, the EU uh, colleagues um, uh, take into account much more um, what, is, what is going on. That does not mean that uh, we are in any way uh, at our goal or cl really close to our goal to build a green BRI. I think there's a lot, a lot of work to be done. Um, but the dynamic um, that we're seeing is, of course, uh, very, very promising. Christoph Nedepal Wong is the director of the Green Finance and Development Center at Fudan University in Shanghai. Previously, he was at the Green Belt and Road Initiative Center at the Central University of Finance and Economics. There, he wrote the China Belt and Road Initiative Investment Report for the first half of 2021. If you go to the Green BRI Center's website, there's a whole bunch of stuff that Christoph has written there. It's a very important resource in order to get some of this data to better understand some of these issues. I'll put a link 
to the first half report in the show notes of the program. Christoph, thank you so much for taking the time to bring us back up to date on some of these issues. It's always enlightening to talk with you. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing and some of your new adventures in Shanghai, what's the best way for them to stay in touch? I'm on uh, Twitter at uh, Nedopil. N-E-D-O-P-I-L. Okay. We'll put a link to his Twitter handle as well. Once again, Christoph, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Kobus, Christoph is one of those sources for us who just comes loaded with facts. And this is what's missing in so much of the U.S. narrative and the broader narratives coming out of B3W and some of the others about China and debt traps, China and and polluting and whatnot, and, and the types of investments that they're doing. And again, I think one of the problems in places like the U.S. is that if you're not assessing the problem accurately with current information, you're not assessing the problem. And when they are talking like Jake Levine was doing, you're just kind of like seeing African stakeholders rolling their eyes and going, oh, God, here we go again. Really? More debt trap kind of talk? Let's move on from that. Because again, if you're sitting in a country like South Africa, where you are, there are very few Chinese loans, if any. So this is a concept that a lot of people just don't seem to grasp. But the flip side of what Christoph was saying, and this is what I was trying to get at with him, was we have to trust but verify. So it's great that the Chinese are making all these wonderful green promises. It's great that they say they're going to be more sustainable. It's great to hear that SinoSure, which is the really the critical part of the development finance piece, is, is now kind of back online with, with green and supporting clean energy. But let's see it in practice. Let's see these projects roll out. I, I want to see the guidelines that they talked about, more stakeholder engagement with civil society organizations, more engagement from the embassies with local governments. Let's see that. And then next year at this time, or the year after at this time, because who knows how long it's going to take, that's when we will evaluate as to whether or not the Chinese are genuinely serious about greening up the BRI. Yeah, I completely agree. Because, you know, as, as you say, these these promises are very promising. Um, but we ourselves have, have been reporting numerous kind of very serious complaints from different African civil society organizations right across the continent about the work of Chinese companies. You know, so so environmental destruction, left and right. You know, um, so so sure, you know, the, like new, new regulations and new guidelines are great. Um, but we would like to see what they're going to be looking like on the ground in relation to you know do, like we started off with you know with with american criticism of the chinese and and i think i think what the, I, I i agree with you i think one of the things that really that really kind of bothers me about this particular line that western countries are taking is that the implication in all of this and is that you know so the, the chinese are like are, are, are dinged i think rightly on you know on on like you know, debt issues, not, not debt trap issues, but, you know, kind of just wider kind of problems with Chinese lending, with, um, you know, environmental stuff, social impl implementation. But the, the kind of unsaid kind of assumption that goes in there is the West is fine on all of these on, on, on all of these counts and in fact the West is so far ahead that that everyone should look at the West as as, a, as an example 
And you know, we we all know that that's not sufficient, right? Kind of the if, if we if we look at the, the the newest kind of UN report on on climate change that came out, what's very clear is that the way of doing business in Western countries themselves is going to have to be completely revolutionized, right? Kind of this like electricity generation, cement production, agriculture, all of these things in even at the, the its very high level as it's being practiced in Canada and in the US and, and in Europe it's going to have to change. Like, none of that stuff is working, climate change-wise. So, so you know, it would be so much more valuable if Western countries were forward-thinking and and kind of, like, move, like, like setting new standards moving into the future, saying, like, this is how we're going to be solving this entire mess, rather than being like, oh, China, they're so dirty, you know, where, where we know that Western companies are doing crazy things all over the global south. So, you know, so that, that's, that, I think, is what frustrates me. And let's not... Forget- forget that Norway, Canada, the United States are literally three of the largest exporters and producers, and the United States, of course, being the largest producer of oil and hydrocarbons in the world, more than Saudi Arabia. So it is just always a little bit incredulous to me that they're standing on their soapbox telling everybody else about how green they are, when literally the oil and gas industry in the United States is foundational to the entire country. Same in Norway. I mean, Norway, it, yeah. Norway, for all of its prognostications about green, has said it will not pull back on its oil business, on stat oil. Yeah, Canada the yeah. same way. I mean, I mean, it's just like it's you know, surreal to listen to the rhetoric. Exactly, Japan and South Korea are both like massive funders of of, of coal infrastructure around the world, including in Africa. You know, so and domestically like, as well. Remember yeah. in Japan, yeah, it's, they have gotten rid of their nuclear business and are now importing vast amounts of coal. Yes. So they need to be called out on that for the fact that also we cannot divorce American domestic politics from this. The Republican Party still does not accept climate change. And the Republican base definitely does not accept climate change. And the question that I have is, will, will American voters make real concessions to their lifestyles? Smaller cars, fewer trips on airplanes, less consumption in the name of climate change? I don't think so. But the thing is, is that is that you know that that very kind of narrative about about you know what what Western consumers are doing, that that narrative is kind of part of the problem because the problem isn't that some person in in you know Ohio flew five times this year. The issue is that the entire agricultural system, manufacturing system, transport system is incredibly oil heavy, and that these companies are supporting the oil. And, and hydrocarbon industries, among others, through massive subsidies. You know, so so if if government subsidies in the Western world, for example, were changed, or if if agricultural subsidies were rethought um, in order to be to be more carbon responsive, then people can fly as much as they want. Like people people can go to Ibiza for lunch. You know, kind of like I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating, but but you know the the you know it's the the this kind of like putting it on the the choices of individual consumers is itself a, a kind of a it contributes to the problem. So what's needed are these companies, these com- these countries, particularly the kind of rich Western countries, to step up, reform them, their own systems, and then you know so through that process set the standards for international reform. Yeah, but let's um, not stop. But just you with know, the but Western as you say, there. it's not easy. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but let's not stop with the Western countries there because the subsidies are also a huge problem in China. Yes, where yes, the yes, Chinese yes. government is and subsidizing Japan, state yeah. on and Japan and South Korea. 
So this is not uniquely a Western thing. No, this is and, about and rich and poor rather than this West is about East. rich and poor, and also protecting these industries that are incredibly well connected in Japan to the LDP, and then in the United States to the Democrats and Republicans. Who get, and it's literally industry writing the laws. So again, I think we need skepticism all around on this issue because no one has their hands clean on this. So as much as B3W and Biden and the Americans and Jake Levine want to kind of take the high road on this thing, I just don't think they're immune from the same criticisms that they're hurling at the Chinese. The Chinese themselves have a lot to answer for. They are the world's largest polluter. They are the world's largest emitter of greenhouse emissions. They have a motivation to clean up their act simply because their people are choking on bad air. They're drinking bad water. Uh, the problems in China are immense. I actually think in some ways China is going to move faster simply because you have that immediacy of the problem. That being said, this past year, and you've been writing about this a lot, the immediacy of the climate change issue is becoming very, very real for people in the global north especially in places like California, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, now in New York as well, Tennessee, 22 people dead from floods there attributed to climate change as well. So it'll be interesting to see if that conversation changes a little bit. I don't have any hope that the Republican Party is going to change, but if the Republicans stay out of power in the United States, we have some hope to kind of move this issue. If the Republicans come back into power, Cobus, all bets are off at that point. Yeah, well, you know, the the main one of the main talking points coming out of Western countries about about China is this is this China's uh, you know challenge to Western leadership. So let's see Western leadership step up, do something, lead on this issue. It's like this is like wide open, you know, like you know, kind of show us what you can do. This is where I'm just gnashing my teeth because this is where Europe, in so many ways has an innate advantage on this issue because Europe has made many of the sacrifices that I've talked about. Europe has implemented many of the policies. Europe has cut back on some of their subsidies. You know, in so many ways, Europe has a great story to tell here. But again, we have a feckless European Union foreign policy. We have no coordinated kind of message coming out of the European Union. And it's absolutely frustrating because I think in many respects, they do have a good story to tell, much better than the United States in some ways. But they, for some reason, are deferring to the United States on B3W on these issues with China. As we heard from Christophe, you know, Merkel and Macron are not fully aligned on B3W in terms of using it as a bludgeon for China. They would like to use it as an opportunity to promote their own infrastructure companies and their own initiatives, but not necessarily putting it through the meat grinder of U.S.-China conflict politics. So that's going to be another issue that we look at. So, you know, I guess the takeaway from today is that this dynamic is changing very quickly. So if you are part of that population that is still holding on to, again, the debt trap narrative that China's funding dirty energy all over the world, that China's funding unsustainable energy around the world, that is changing. The data is out there. Go start to look at what is actually happening. And it's not just coming from places like the Green BRI Center. The Boston University Global Development Policy Center is also doing a lot of great research on this. I highly recommend you check out their website. I'll put links to that in the show notes. Again, this is the kind of thing we are covering day in and day out in our newsletter and on our website and in our podcasts. But so if you want to follow what we're doing, go ahead and subscribe. It is really easy to do. We'll give you 30 days for free to check out. 
chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. It's 75 bucks a year for students and teachers, $149 a year for everybody else. That is not a lot of money for everything that you're getting. We've got great contributors now in China, in Kenya, where Cliff and Boya is standing by and writing for us. Cobus is doing these amazing columns every week, and I'm doing the news every week, and it's just, it's jam-packed, so I really hope that you'll give it a try. If you have any questions about it, just you can drop us an email. I'm Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com, and Cobus is at Cobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. So we'll leave our conversation there, pick it up on social media and in our daily newsletter, which we hope that you'll follow. Until next week, Cobus and I will be back again with another issue. Until next week, Cobus and I will be back again with another episode. So for Cobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs> <laughs>